Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Eve Bluent continues our series of messages on the Book of the Twelve, today looking at the prophet Obadiah. And now, here's Eve. Morning. So, thank you for the opening. Uh, it, it, uh, uh, it made me think, as we will see in this book of Obadiah, that uh, where Edom won nothing to do with God. And uh, the hymns, we, we, some of the songs we sang made me think of Psalm 139, verse uh, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. We can't get away from God. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that, that you are who you are, that you're ever present, that you're, you're at our, there to help us at our most dire times. We pray, Lord, that this message will touch some and will help us get closer to you, Lord. Amen. Obadiah is the shortest book of the Bible. There's only 21 verses. Its central theme is the destruction of Edom and the eventual restoration of Israel. I'll start by giving some background after which We'll read the passage and then elaborate on the core underlying theme. <clears throat> other than being a prophet, unlike most of the other prophets, we don't know who Obadiah was. We also don't know what years he was prophesying. Though from the context of the text, it would appear it could be after the conquest of Jerusalem by Babylon around 582 BC. In this book, there are several names mentioned which may be helpful to identify further. It mentioned Israel, which is synonymous with Jacob. Sometimes Israel refers to the nation that's split off from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. But in this case, it appears to refer to all of the tribes of Israel. The term the house of Jacob again refers to all of the tribes of Israel. Abraham had Isaac, who had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Israel was a name given to Jacob by God. He was a cunning and deceiving individual, but he found grace with God. Esau, on the other hand, despised his birthright, which was from God, and in doing so also despised God. God knew Esau's heart even before he was born. Esau rejected God. Let's read the passage in Genesis Genesis 15:29-34. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. 
And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau didn't sell his birthright because there was nothing to eat at home, but because of the desires of his flesh. He didn't rightly value his spiritual birthright. The person with the birthright was the priest of the family. He was the one in the relationship with God. Esau essentially said, I would rather have a bowl of stew than have a relationship with God. Here's a quote from Vernon McGee that I believe you'll appreciate. The name Edom means red or sunburn. The sunburned man in scripture is the man who could not absorb the light of heaven and it burned him. My friend, the light of heaven will either save you or burn you. You will either absorb it or you will be burned by it. It is an interesting analogy. Are you being saved or burned? I will show some maps of these regions which may also help understand the passage. The first identifies the territories of the twelve tribes after the conquest by Joshua of the Promised Land. Of interest, you'll note that the tribe of Simeon is within the borders of the tribe of Judah, but when the Israelites' kingdom split into two, only the tribes of Benjamin and Judah are mentioned as part of the southern kingdom. The tribe of Simeon had by then most likely been absorbed within Judah. I've circled the areas referred to in Obadiah in red on this map and on the following two. When it refers to the south, it is likely referring to the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, as nearby verses appear to support this interpretation. Ephraim was one of the twelve tribes of Israel. He was one of the two sons of Joseph along with Manasseh, and these two sons of Joseph received equal tribal land rights along with Israel's other sons. Samaria could be referring to the capital city of the region of Israel when Israel split up into the north and south tribes, and it could be referring to the northern area as well. Obadiah also refers to Mount Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, though it can refer to a hill in Jerusalem or to the city of David. And at times it was referred to as to the Temple Mount. The context seemed to imply that Mount Zion refers to all of Israel or Jerusalem. After Moses' conquest of this area, Gilead was allocated to the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh. However, it appears to have fallen out of the control of the Israelites at a later time. Today, this area is northern Jordan. Edom is the territory that Esau's descendant occupied. And this is the area at the bottom down there that you see. That's the main passage. Uh, that, that, that of, this is the main area the passage is referring to. Mount Seir and Petra are in the region of Edom. Some of you know Petra because of its famous architecture. The Nebuteans built it. The Nebuteans were a nation that came after the Edomites. Some believe they were the descendants of Ishmael, Jacob's uncle. They, lived, they likely lived with Edom and took over the region when the Edomites left their barren hills to go to the fertile lands of Judah after the people of Judah were taken to Babylon. And this is going to be a major part of why God is angry with the Edomites. The fact that they, they took advantage and didn't support the Israelites. 
This following picture is our Edom's territory. Not exactly hospitable. You can see why you would want to move out of there. Definitely not where I would want to raise cattle or sheep. The mention of Teman is a grandson of Esau and lived in the south of Edom. In this slide at the top, the red pin drop is the location of Seir. To the west of it, there was also the Edomite territory, and that part had more vegetation. The body of water at the top of the slide is the Dead Sea. It's also interesting to note that at the time of Jesus' birth, a famous evil king by the name of Herod the Great reigned. Herod the Great was an Edomite with a Jewish mother. I hope this will help understand the context of the book, the various names mentioned. This is a very short book, so we'll read all of the book. Uh, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nation, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Again, parallels are opening. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? This is emphasizing how they, they went beyond the stealing and, and taking care of what they needed. They plundered Israel. Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat of your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty man, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountain of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners, foreigners enters his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not gaze on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance. You should not have stood at the crossroad to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord upon all the nation is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be 
as though they have never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountain of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Verse 3 identifies what God had against Edom. It was pride. You might say that pride isn't bad. You're proud of your educational accomplishment, your career advancements, your athletic achievements, the work of your hands, of your kids, of your spouse, of your country. That might be a stretch, but you understand what I mean. And even of being saved by God and many other things. It can't be wrong to be proud of those, can it be? If someone is a murderer, that has to be worse than pride, right? What do you think God hates the most? Let's look at Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. says about the, what the Lord hates. These six things the Lord hates, yes, even seven, are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discords among the brethren. What comes first in this list? Pride. Pride is considered <clears throat> jump the slide. Proverbs eight thirteen and one John first John two sixteen both say that God hates pride, but the pride of life isn't from the Father, but it is of the world. Pride is considered one of the seven deadly sins. Pride is regarded as the original and worst sin. Saint Augustine, oh, sorry about that. Saint Augustine said, "It was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels." Isaiah fourteen thirteen to twenty four tells us Satan's fall was due to his pride. C.S. Lewis had a lot to say about pride. There'll be a lot of quotes about C.S. from C.S. Lewis. Bear with me; it's just very appropriate. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which are, we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. 
it is a complete anti-God state of mind. I especially like C.S. Lewis pointing out that the more you have pride, the more you dislike it in others. Uh, so true. How do we feel when we're patronized, excluded, or snubbed? There are 14, 48 occurrences of the word pride in the, my, in the New King James translations, and none are positive. There are many more instances of pride in the Bible where the word doesn't occur, but all are negative. In Obadiah's time, Edom was independent of God. The Edomites lived in the great buildings hewn from solid rock inside an incredible canyon that protected them from invaders. They felt secure. When Israel was invaded, rather than help them, whom they were related to, they helped the enemy and took advantage of Israel's woes. As a result, God says that he will judge them for these actions. Pride may come from a sense of being better than others, having been able to do something of your own strength, intelligence, ability. You've managed your children better than others. You financially succeeded where others have failed. Your kids have accomplished great things, at least because of you, at least partly. You, are, you or your kids have married into the right families. You're proud of your looks, beauty, or appearance. Your walk is closer to the Lord than this other person. You've resisted substance abuse, whether drugs or alcohol, that others have succumbed to. You've never been separated or divorced. At least you're definitely better than so-and-so. Is it okay to climb that ladder at the expense of others? You definitely deserved it. And what if a few eggs are broken in the process? If you didn't do it, someone else would. Pride may show itself in being happy for someone getting their just deserved misfortunes. I know I'm guilty of this one. Romans 3.9 What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. Romans 3.27 By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. God didn't save you or me because we were more deserving than anyone. It was only God's grace and mercy that saved each and every one of us. Pride puts the merits of God. Sorry. Pride puts the merits on us versus God. Pride compares ourselves to others. C.S. Lewis continues with, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We see that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is a comparison that makes you proud, the pleasures of being above the rest. A proud person is never satisfied. I've adjusted the dollars in this quote from C.S. Lewis to reflect our times, because he, he was like in 1950s. Take it with money. Greed will certainly make a man want money. For the sake of a better house, better holidays, better things to eat and drink, but only up to a point. What is it that a man makes with $120,000 a year, anxious to get $250,000 a year. It is not greed for more pleasure. $125,000 will give you all the luxuries that any man can really enjoy. It is pride, the wish to be richer than some other rich man, and still more, the wish for power. A proud person craves power to feel superior to others. If I am a proud man, 
then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. Pride shouts independence. It's the attitude that declares its ability to live without God. If our decision is to live without God, not only are we going to live without God now, but throughout eternity. There are two kinds of people, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, All right then, have it your way. Pride makes you God's enemy. Not only does it cause division among each other, but between God and us. In God, you come up against something which is, in every respect, immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means that they are worshipping an imaginary God. They theoretically, theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow men. The currency here reflects the British, obviously. I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking when he said that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name, only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them, and any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Pride makes us vulnerable to the devil. Pride is the way the devil gets a toehold in your life that leads us to ignore our sin. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that these are beneath his dignity, that is, by pride. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you become chaste and brave and self-controlled Provided all the time he is setting up to the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be quite content to see your sores and blisters cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Pride can blind us to our own pride when we delight less in the praise, which is in itself isn't sinful and delight more in ourselves. The real black diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you do not care what they think of you. Of course, it is very right and often our duty not to care what people think of us if we do it for the right reason, namely because we care so incomparably more what God thinks. But the problem then is a different reason for not caring. He says, All I have done has been done to satisfy my own ideals or my artistic conscience or to the chap. If the mob like it, let them. They're nothing to me. Our successes, all of them, come by the grace of God. They're not merited or deserved. All our aptitudes come from God, including perseverance and drive. 
Let's give credit to God and not to ourselves. It is perfectly fine to be happy about good things happening to us, our children, and anyone. But we need not to taint it, these blessings with pride. Let's think of others as better than ourselves, always. Philippians 2.3 Let nothing be done through selfish ambitions or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Our right response to our success and abilities should be gratefulness and thankfulness to God. Wanting to bless and help others without being patronizing. Our society hasn't evolved to be closer to God. Man still declares his independence from God more so today than possibly any other century. We think we're better than animals, yet much of society still behaves worse than animals. There's a story of the pig that got out of its pen, wandered out in the woods, and found an alcohol steel. Mash had leaked out of this alcohol steel, and it began, the pig began to eat it, and also to drink it, the liquid leaking out of it. The pig got drunk, and I mean really drunk. He couldn't walk, and he sprawled right down in the mud. He stayed there for 24 hours until he sobered up. Then as he started off grunting, he was heard to say, I'll never play the man again. Or as someone else expressed it, How well do I remember? It was in a bleak December, and as I was strolling down the street in manly pride, when my heart began to flutter, and I fell into a gutter, and a pig came up and lay down by my side, and as I lay there in the gutter, my heart still aflut, all aflutter, a man passing by did chance to say, You can tell a man that boozes by the company he chooses. And the pig got up and slowly walked away. <laughs> I think Dave Hook was afraid I would miss this message. This slide may look familiar, as it is Dave's concluding slide on the introduction of the prophet, which is the con concluding verse 21 of Obadiah. Though the curses are directed at Edom and the blessing at Israel, this is representative of the greater drama of the world, God in us. David wanted us to ensure that we, you got the message. God will be acknowledged as king of all one day. The good news is that those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Lord will be co-rulers with him. The bad news is this. will apply only to those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you're not one of those Jesus followers today, what is stopping you? Is it pride? If so... Is the condemnation that comes with this pride worth it? How do we turn from pride to humility? We need to first recognize our pride. If Christ is to be our example, can we learn to follow him in his humility? We do have to be careful not to be proud of our humility. But with prayer and the Holy Spirit's guidance, we can imitate Christ in his humility. Can we have a minute of silence and let's bring glory to God by examining ourselves in the area of pride and see where he can help us. Most of us will need more than a minute, but a minute is a start in the right direction. Also, for those who are married, let's focus on us, ourselves, versus our spouse, as we only have one minute. And that would be prideful.
That made it seem long, didn't it? According to Lewis, a humble person will strike you as a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you had, a little envious of anyone who seemed to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Is your reluctance to follow Christ because you've seen too many self-righteous and prideful Christians? If so, please forgive us as Christ continues to work in us. And the Holy Spirit convinces us of the need to change. To be free in Christ is better than being a slave to the world and its values. This slide is one of my favorite slides. I believe I've shown it every time I've brought a message. That is because it applies to all messages. It gives me hope in my failures. I would be lying to tell you that you'll never stumble after you accept Christ. We're all work in progress. Better Christ working in us than the devil. Thank you very much. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this reminder in these 21 short verses. Uh, we have seen a nation go from, as it were, rock mountains to rock cities. And those cities became their defense. Their security was in their possessions. Uh, their, their foundations were their actual buildings, their homes, their their mountains. And they, like so many of us, including ourselves, when we walk away from you, we walk in our own strength, which is feeble. And so, Lord, we thank you again for this reminder that the kingdom is the Lord's. The king is coming. Jesus is coming soon. And he is king of all. And so, Lord, we pray that we may walk humbly with our God and that we may do righteous and live in ways that seek mercy. And, Lord, we thank you again that your son uh, set the example for us, but not only did that, but he says that he is in us and he is faithful. And so, Lord, as we go from this place following the final hymn, Lord, may we rise to walk under your strength. Uh, the eagle doesn't flap its wings when it's riding on the thermal. And so too, Lord, when we are riding, as it were, or lifted by you, there's no need to make a big show, but rather glorify the sun. And we thank you again that you have taken us, uh, your lumps of clay, and have sought to use us for the propagation of the gospel. Lord, may you receive all the glory. May you receive all the praise. And may there be something that will last for eternity on this day. We like to say on the coming week, but really, Lord, we're not promised a week. We're only promised this day. And so this day, Lord, may we walk with you. And we give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info 
at vfa.church. Until next time.